Welcome to Big Martech, the show where we talk about the big ideas, the big topics, and the big news in the marketing technology industry. I'm Juan. I'm Scott. So Scott, what's the news this week? What are the headlines? What are you thinking about? Wow. I'll tell you one of the things I came across this week that I thought was super interesting. Uh, and I'll even like share this diagram. Uh, yeah, uh, the folks at G2, who, you know, run like a huge online uh, review system for software and increasingly services too. Uh, every year they've been doing a buyer behaviors report, uh, really digging into the analysis of how do corporate buyers from, well, small companies, mid-market enterprise buy software. Uh, kind of fascinating things, but this one was really fascinating to me, you know, that they noticed the shift in buying sources. You know, typically, right, when you think about, well, where do you buy your software from? Well, I guess I buy it from the seller, the person who created the software. Well, yeah, that is where the majority of transactions happen. But increasingly, this idea of third-party marketplaces, you know, things like the AWS marketplace, uh, certainly within different platform ecosystems, you know, they have their own uh, marketplaces. We're seeing this shift happen where increasingly buyers, particularly in the enterprise segment, are going through those third-party marketplaces as a way to acquire their software. So, you know, I said for like MarTech 2030, this decade, uh, yeah, platforms, networks, and marketplaces, that's where it's at. That is indeed where it is at. Yeah, what really, about you? It's really interesting. I mean, the... I, I, what really strikes me here is the net negative change um, on all categories by purchasing directly from the vendor. The question I have on that is, does that mean that vendor landing pages are obsolete? I think it's a set of mess. Oh, so there's two things here. There's the discovery, there's that process of evaluation, and then there's the actual transaction. You know, and I think third-party marketplaces are serving two different ends of that spectrum. Certainly within platform ecosystems, they uh, play a tremendous role in discovery. You know, inside an ecosystem, people are able to find the other products that are complementary to that core platform. But I think what you're also seeing with things like the AWS marketplace in particular is when it actually comes time to do the procurement, what's happened is AWS has created this really strong relationship, uh, you know, with the procurement departments. Uh, they've actually facilitated the ability for people to have a contract with AWS and then under that master contract, be able to acquire third-party software. So they're, they're basically facilitating uh, the actual transaction portion procurement uh, part as well, too. And so I think you're, you know, there's still plenty of room for landing pages in the software world. They're not going away anytime soon, but for discovery and transactions, marketplaces are definitely on the rise. Yeah, that's really interesting because there's, there's this element of the, you know, the B, B2B uh, buyer's journey and how complex that's getting. And even Scott, you and I have talked in, uh, in a, a previous podcast about this topic of B2B buying is becoming more like e-commerce and it's done more online. And so you put that trend on top of this, which is, uh, yeah, more B2B buyers are going directly to marketplaces, um, it really starts to break apart that journey. It's not as clear now as, as it used to be where you say you do some SEO, uh, uh, user searches for their problem. Maybe they get some content marketing and then they go to your landing page and then they buy your software. Uh, there's marketplace. There's all these different elements now in the journey for B2B buyers, which I think is it's an interesting one to watch. Um, I still think there is a role there though. Yeah, I think you, I agree with you that discovery, education, um, doing marketing, 
um, in your own environment, your web page, your own content marketing is still extremely important. Don't rely on the marketplaces only. Um, but yes, it's a, it's a good one. So, uh, for me, well, I'm actually sitting in a hotel right now because I'm in San Francisco and Dreamforce week. So that's the annual pilgrimage to the Salesforce tower. I was walking around San Francisco yesterday, the day before event, and there were people with lanyards everywhere. Uh, but last week there was actually some really interesting, uh, news that dropped, uh, where Salesforce part is partnered with, uh, Snowflake. Now Snowflake's a data lake platform. Uh, that's one of the fastest growing companies in that category. Um, it recently IPO'd, uh, really successful business. Uh, but this partnership, and maybe I can read a quote here. Uh, so this is, um, from. One of the execs uh, that was taking care of this partnership, um, they said, so instead of copying data into our mutual customer Snowflake account, what Salesforce does is it leverages that data sharing technology to make the CDP data available for querying on the Snowflake site of our mutual customers. So they can now join it, enrich it, and run it through machine learning. But if the data changes in Salesforce in the CDP, it's also reflected in Snowflake in real time. Now, we talked last week on Big MarTech episode one about this shift towards the second age of MarTech. And this news probably couldn't come at a more perfect time. You've got the biggest CRM category in the world. Um, also, Salesforce is a, a growing a dominant presence in CDP. And you've also got Marketing Cloud and all the other services that sit around the Salesforce ecosystem. Now, this tells me that a lot of customers now thinking about the data warehouse and how they integrate and plug um, what's happening with their tools like a Salesforce CRM with what's actually happening in their core data repositories as well. Um, so I think there's an interesting trend. Trend. I think there's this huge wave of cloud um, and being really careful and sensitive on how you actually integrate all the tools in your MarTech stack. But what's your take on this news? Yeah, well, to me, this is part of that larger trend uh, of basically the reintegration of MarTech with the more universal data layer, uh, you know, throughout the company. We talked actually a little bit in one of the shout outs last week too, about, uh, you know, high touch and, uh, what I'm kind of calling their virtual CDT, you know, approach to, again, basically treating Snowflake as ultimately the, the fundamental system of record for all data throughout the business, but then making it easier and easier for different, uh, departments, different teams, in our case, the marketing world to be able to pull out and leverage key elements, you know, from that data source, manipulate it, leverage it, make changes, push it back in. Uh, and so to me, this is just, yeah, sort of one more, uh, one more clear signal, uh, that yes, this is, this is the new meta model, uh, of the data warehouse is really the foundation of the whole tech stack. Mm. It's crazy to me how, um, so many companies, particularly enterprise are asking this question, Hey, what is the single source of truth for our customer? Um, I would say that most enterprise companies, even today, uh, have not one single source, but many spread across different teams, product, marketing, customer service. And, uh, I think this shift towards the warehouse is an attempt to sort of harmonize all that data, bring it into a place and, and orchestrate in a way that makes um, things, well, it actually sets a lot of companies up for scale. I think that it actually makes that, uh, the data available and services, um, more teams, if you have that single source of truth, but 
the other side of this, Scott, is that Snowflake is expensive. AWS Redshift is expensive. And so there is that sort of value trade-off as well. What's the value of the data that's sitting in that data repository? Now, I think this integration between Salesforce and Snowflake maybe adds to that value equation because Salesforce obviously makes use of that data. It helps bring value back to it, either through marketing, direct marketing, analytics, or or even through their CRM activities as well that you can do on platforms. So I think it's an interesting thing to watch. Uh, and But that growing trend, I think, is just it's continuing to grow. Um, so it's very interesting. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, hey, man, what's our big chat for this week? Well, the big chat is the big news that came out Thursday last week talking about the acquisition of Figma by Adobe. Now... A few quick stats on this one. It was a $20 billion acquisition. Um, they split it 50-50 in stock, uh, Adobe stock and cash. So the founders over there, they just had the payday of their lifetime. Can you imagine $10 billion in cash? I can't even imagine that amount of money. Uh, but uh, it's also about 50 times Figma's current ARR. And in our market right now in the tech space, we've been in a, well, I would say a three to four month period of downturn. This multiple on the ARR is massive, uh, and it's kind of unheard of in the design industry. Figma, they, they do UX. It's a design tool. You use it in the browser. They've also got a product called FigJam, which is kind of like a Miro uh, competitor where you can go in, collaborate. But uh, one other stat which I find really interesting is that this is the sixth largest software acquisition ever. So if we look at the largest ones, we have Activation Blizzard with Microsoft. That was uh, almost $70 billion. IBM Red Hat. Then going into Salesforce or Slack, that was really large, almost $30 billion. Uh, Microsoft again and LinkedIn. You have Meta and WhatsApp, and then you have Adobe and Figma. So massive acquisition. I think a lot of us saw this coming, but uh, maybe if I could show this image, and I think if I could sum up the designs design community, the UX design community's um, response to this acquisition was basically this, which is one of the last scenes, we're a sad, tragic scene in Star Wars Episode Three: um, Return of the Sith, where you have Obi-Wan Kenobi and his apprentice, Anakin Skywalker. And in this scene, uh, they're dueling it out. Anakin Skywalker's joined the Darth, the dark side. He's called Darth Vader at this point, and they're battling out on um, this sort of embankment and then Obi-Wan Kenobi cuts Anakin Skywalker in half. And then he says this famous line, you were chosen. You were the chosen one. It was supposed to, it was said that you were supposed to, to destroy the Sith, not join them. Um, and this meme is sort of that same concept is that, um, whether you like it or not, Figma was that underdog. It, the, the company was seen as an Adobe killer, uh, for a few reasons. Uh, a novel, unique take and approach towards design and UX, um, their ability to do collaboration uh, with almost anyone in the tool that was really unique when they launched their product. And then the last one is they did it in the browser. And uh, if you look at uh, the Adobe Creative Cloud Suite, all the software is downloadable. And they also competed on price as well, uh, far cheaper than the Adobe products. And so you have this collective sigh from the design community, basically saying, well, wow, why would you do this? It was supposed to be an Adobe killer. You were supposed to bring balance to the design software industry figma, not join Adobe. I mean, it's absolutely crazy, but I think there's a few other aspects to this, which is really important as well. Now, 
um, one of the interesting things here is that the even though Figma had this novel, unique take towards design in the browser collaboration, they also competed on Frostpoint as well. They're not the only one. Uh, there's a number of tools uh, in that in that sort of design creativity uh, ecosystem that really started to unbundle and unpack all the different um, products and features that in the Adobe ecosystem. So I'm going to share another image with you. And this is a little graphic I put together just to show, I guess, the how the industry's changed over the past 10 years in the way that uh, people use design and creativity tools. So if you look at Adobe Creative Cloud, there's sort of four big categories. There's content, which is Photoshop. That's UX design. That's the XD tool. There's design, which is the Adobe Illustrator and then video, which is Premiere. Um, and then also um, there's a number of other video suites as well in the Adobe ecosystem. Now, Adobe is a massive company. It's huge. And they go in all directions, analytics, right through to um, customer experience, personalization. Um, but in the creative suite, you've got all this unbundling that's happening. So a Canva is a really good example. Canva saw Adobe and they said, why do you need professional tools to create social media posts or a graphic for a presentation? That doesn't make sense. So they came along and said, well, why don't we unbundle Photoshop and give uh, users the opportunity in the browser to create designs in a really easy, effective way to zero marginal cost. Um, that was a really interesting one. There's also uh, Affinity Photo Editor, which did the old school, uh, it's kind of like reverse disruption where they said, hey, you're downloading software, but you buy it once and then you never have to pay for it again, which is, I think, the way nature intended software. But I'm interested to get your view on that, Scott. But I think that there's an interesting sort of reverse aspect because Adobe originally, they asked users to pay for software once um, and then uh, they wouldn't need to pay for it again. Adobe's um, subscription model is very expensive across the creative cloud. Um, but again, really interesting one. And then you have like tools like Instagram. I mean, Instagram really changed how photo editing was done, particularly on the mobile device where you have filters, you can crop, you can change. Um, that was a lot of that Photoshop um, sort of workload. Doing that in your phone, I think was a big disruption. And then you go through these other areas, um, UX. Uh, so you've got Figma, you've got InDesign for prototyping, you've got Balsamic, which has been around forever, which is a really cheap and easy to use um, sort of wireframing tool, M Miro for collaboration, wireframing conceptualization, and Sketch. Sketch and Figma are like sisters, very similar approach in the browser, highly collaborative and compete on price point, but Sketch is really focused on handoff to developers. So turning your designs and your concepts into code and handing that off. So that's where they differentiate a little bit more. Through that Adobe Illustrator and design, you've got Pixlr, you've got a whole bunch of other tools there. And then uh, Premiere, you have tools like Descript. Uh, I, I use Descript for this show, wonderful tool for video editing. And then you've got um, a number of other tools here that really sort of, sort of speak to the need to really think about how, um, I guess how video can be transformed and changed without having this heavyweight software um, to manipulate and make edits as well. So really interesting. Uh, there's one last one there, which is frame.io. Adobe actually acquired that company. So that's a collaborative video editing software as well. So uh, there's a lot of unbundling in the Adobe space, particularly around creativity tools. And I think the, that $20, $20 billion price point speaks to the missed opportunity for Adobe to move creativity into the cloud and into the browser, um, most importantly. But what's your take on the uh, the acquisition, Scott? 
Yeah, wow. There's so many things to go here. And I'm sure Adobe greatly appreciates the uh, Star Wars analogies uh, with them and the uh, <laughs> Dark Force. You don't realize the power of the dark side. Um, so uh, I think the unbundling is really smart. I think, uh, you know, certainly this ability to create software that lives natively in the browser has been one of the catalysts for that. Part of what I see when I see that diagram there, though, is actually this, this embrace of the philosophy of no code in a very, very broad sense. It's this idea exactly as you were saying, like, I don't need this whole suite of like super sophisticated, like ultra professional tools, like for the vast majority of people who are business users, marketers, you know, actually simplifying things uh, and leveraging, you know, some of the latest AI capabilities to just make it really, really easy for me. I'm not a professional video editor, but hey, okay, I can pull together this uh, podcast, you know, and it looks great. It sounds great. You know, uh, Canva, obviously, just like an absolute master at this. And I think this is a real challenge for companies like Adobe. This is the classic Clay Christensen disruptive innovation curve is, you know, when you are serving the sophisticated end of the market, it's so easy to look at the low end tools and dismiss them and be like, no, that's just a toy. That's just a plaything." you know, oh, what, you know, our professional users want is they want this next generation of even the more sophisticated capability. And you keep sort of rising up. But meanwhile, these disruptive players, um, you know, and I think Canva's exactly like that. You could argue Figma too, although part of what they were doing was really serving a very specific uh, uh, community mm -hmm. use case. Um, but yeah, they, they, they sort of grow up where like what you're first able to do in the browser and oh, it's that easy. Yeah, we can just dismiss that. But they're like serving these huge underserved communities for whom, you know, these lower end tools actually serve their needs beautifully. Uh, they do it faster. It's easier. It's cheaper. And then over time, those tools expand and they add more capabilities and they start to bring in more audiences. But I don't know. I mean, I think you could make the argument that Adobe played this exactly the way they should. Um, you know, the thing I look at, uh, you know, for these large big tech behemoths is they are constantly under threat of being disrupted by the next new wave. And it's very hard for them just organizationally to be on the ground floor of those things. It's just, it's the, the nature of the difference between being a gigantic enterprise and being a scrappy entrepreneurial startup. But the greatest asset they have is a huge friggin' bank account and a huge <laughs> market valuation, you know, and for them to basically say, okay, well, once we're clear what the winner is gonna be in a particular next generation, we'll just buy it. Thank you so much for building this for us. We'll take over from here. Now, how the community responds to that and, you know, can they hold on to that and leverage it and build it, I guess, is the trick. But I don't know. If I was a betting person, I'll give Adobe better than decent odds of being able to pull that off. Mm. The, do you remember that Andy Warhol quote, that really famous one, where they, I think he said, in the future, everyone will be world famous 15 minutes? Yeah. Does everybody get 20 billion for 15 minutes? <laughs> well, I think, I think there's an interesting spin on that quote, which is, um, not that everyone will be well famous every, uh, every 15 minutes, but everyone will make others famous through being able to create their own content. I mean, the unbundling of Adobe into all of these, as you say, these no code tools is actually about the accessibility for the everyday person to create videos 
I mean, even look at TikTok, really good example. It's turning a whole generation into video editors. Um, and that's a skill that we never really learn at a mass scale like that before, where like learning how to create a good TikTok is actually part of interacting on the social media ecosystem. Uh, so I think it's unbundling all these creative tools. I think Adobe has made an interesting move. I still question where the customer sits in that move. Like, is this really a priority for the customer? Uh, and how does this actually make UX design more accessible, uh, you know, even more enjoyable, easier to use? Uh, that's a question that's still outstanding for me. This seems more of a as competitive acquisition to take away one of the major players out of the market and put them into the, into the Adobe camp. But wait and see. We'll see what happens. Maybe the innovation will continue. Let's hope it doesn't go say the way the the way that Waze did when Google acquired Waze. That was many years ago. Where a fantastic article um, of the, from the founder there. They said, look, they got into the business. He was still the founder of Waze, but he was was blocked at every turn to actually innovate and move like startups should move. But Anyway, congrats to Figma, 20 billion. I mean, you, look, if somebody gives you a briefcase of 20 million, twenty billion dollars in it, you're not going to say no. I mean, I'm not That's a big say. briefcase. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big briefcase. I mean, it's probably more like a jumbo jet plane, but I mean, it's that's a that's a lot of money. So congratulations to the team. They made an excellent choice, very tasteful on how they built a product. And in a lot of ways, all like Adobe in the early days. I mean, they went from print to digital design and they saw that curve um, right back 20, 20 to 30 years ago. So I think uh, I think Adobe's looking at Figma like the little brother that that um that they've always had. So very interesting story for this week. But Let's move into shout outs. Scott, what's your shout out this week? I want to shout out prompt base. Uh, so, wow, you know, uh, uh, you've been writing some great stuff lately about, you know, synthetic marketing and obviously things like whether it's GPT-3 on text or Dolly 2 or stable diffusion, you know, there's all these amazing things now where you create these prompts, you know, and the AI generates, you know, content for you. Well, lo and behold, uh, there is now a marketplace for props, uh, you know, the people who are really crafting like, oh, well, this is the collection of props you use to get this kind of a, you know, output from it. And well, I'll sell this to you for $20, for $50. Uh, so prompt base has become this marketplace uh, for these. Uh, and yeah, you know, I mean, uh, if, uh, if if there was this threat that, oh, okay, well, now this AI is going to like eliminate, you know, work of people who are doing the uh, the art themselves. Well, I guess... Yes, but now there's a whole new profession for prompt engineering uh, to create that. So um, I think it's just fascinating to see both how quickly this happened, uh, but also, yeah, just, you know, this really great example of just seeing how these evolutions in technology just change the nature of where we as humans are going to be adding value. Mm -hmm. it's, so my big takeaway from prompt base in this marketplace, which is literally people just writing prompts for these AI tools, like OpenAI's Valley 2 and Midjourney and, um, and then Stable Diffusion. These are all just AI prompt-based tools that illustrate images for you. And there's a real craft in the phraseology of that, like actually writing the right phrase, the right um, prompt for that specific image that they're after. But I would like to ask the industry, just take a deep breath just give us 24 hours before we start monetizing this technology. It is absolutely insane how it's literally, it felt like next day we've got these opportunities to monetize some of these technologies and it's just moving so quickly that space and there's so much hype. I mean, almost, it's almost like, it feels kind of like the web three boom back in 2021, how like, and there was like NFT profile pictures everywhere. Everyone was talking about NFT and blockchain and crypto and decentralization. It's almost like now 
everyone's building AI solutions. Everyone's got an AI app. Everyone's got something that's plugging into the DALI 2 or something else, you know? So I think it's this really interesting hype wave. And I mean, these hype cycles, they, they rise and fall really quickly, but the difference here with the AI stuff is that it's, just, it's an actual use case. I mean, being able to generate literally thousands of images within minutes is awesome. Uh, it really takes the, yep. uh, one, one, uh, author from the every great publication said that if this is a, uh, zero marginal cost content. So where, what the internet did to distribution of content, turn that dollar figure into zero. You can just post something on the social media, cost you nothing. And now we're going into this age of AI where it, there's zero marginal cost to not just distribute the content, but create it as well. So I, again, really interesting. I think definitely check out the marketplace, go buy something fun. Um, but it's exploding lots of monetization opportunities at the moment. And you know, let's just hype it up a little bit because it is really fun and interesting. Uh, All right, what's your shout out one? Well, what's my shout out? My shout out is something totally different. Um, this is a story from Craigslist, a great, great article, an interview with the founder, Craig Newmark. And the story is about why Craigslist hasn't changed for more than 25 years. It still looks exactly the same as when it launched in the late 90s. Now, Craigslist was an innovation. It was the first, one of the first marketplaces to hit the internet. Um, and, uh, Craig's really tasteful, really philosophical view on why he never iterated on the product, why they never went, say the path of Google or Amazon or Facebook, where they optimized and optimized and optimized the product ruthlessly. It still remained the same. Uh, so I think that there's really, really interesting, uh, sort of philosophical take here. Um, it's a good question to ask because I don't think every company needs to go on this endless paths of optimization and, and iteration. I think some companies are just fine the way they are. Like Craigslist is still popular. There's a, still a big team and they still make a lot of money and turn Craig into a billionaire. So, I mean, it's a very interesting view, but you know, you've been around the software world may way longer than I've been Scott, but what are you just putting your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, certainly hats off to, uh, yeah, Craigslist. I mean, uh, what a transformational, uh, company, uh, you know, for that, that stage of the internet. Uh, and I think probably also gets the, um, mantle for single immediately having nearly wiped out the entire newspaper industry, uh, you know, <laughs> overnight. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of love <laughs> among prior news, newspaper publishers for, uh, Craig, but, um, nonetheless, right. This is, this is what happens. I think I half agree with you. I, you know, think like, Hey, not everything needs to be iterated and evolved, but you know, the flip side of this is exactly what we were talking about with Adobe, you know, like, mm. uh, the world does not tend to let you sit on your laurels forever. Um, and so what will be the next thing that we will disrupt Craigslist? Well, well I guess if uh, you figure that out, uh, who knows, maybe there's $20 billion in a uh, jumbo jet waiting for you. I think there's one thing here, which is nostalgia. So the generation that grew up on Craigslist will eventually build software that looks like Craigslist. I mean, somebody is, I follow a few different tech influences and what they do is they like write they designed their blog in the same way that it was designed in the nineties, like just straight HTML, you know, like on a web page and maybe an image and nothing else. Like, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway website, which is, you know, one of the biggest investors in the world, it's still the same as it always was. Right. And it's like this real sort of like nostalgia trend, vintage sort of concept here that like is a little bit fashionable. It's a really interesting sort of 
internet culture trend, I guess, is like that vintage aspect. So, you know, Craigslist is still cool because it looks vintage, you know, in the same way that vinyl's cool because it's vintage, even though we had CDs and, and then we've got MP3s and now streaming as well. So it's interesting. Back to the future. It always goes back to the future. But, uh, but anyway, Scott, take us home. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for another big week in MarTech. Don't miss an episode by subscribing at bigmartech.com. And hey, go do big things. Juan and I are rooting for you.